Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Think of what you're losing by constantly refusing to dance with me. You'd be the idol of France with me. And yet you stand there and shake your foolish head dramatically While I wait here so ecstatically You just look and say emphatically Lady Robin, ça va? Bonsoir, Monsieur Darling. Comment allez-vous? Yikes, so formal. Say, uh, I thought maybe you'd like to cut a little rug. What do you say? Hmm. I won't dance. Don't ask me, I won't dance. Don't ask me, I won't dance. Monsieur with you. Even after that big intro? My heart won't let my feet do things they should do. Hmm, you look confusing. You know what? What? You're lovely. And so what? I'm lovely. Yeah, but what you do to me? Oh, really? I like an ocean wave that's bumped upon the shore. Is that so? So, uh, sorry, I was getting lost in listening to that. <laughs> that's Robin McKell and Kurt Elling, two wonderful, wonderful jazz singers. That's a great song, too. I was trying to actually remember the history of it. Now I've got to pull it up in front of me. It, it, there was a weird thing. where So it's a Jerome Kern tune. Uh, Oscar Hammerstein and a guy named Otto Harbach initially, I think, wrote lyrics for it. Uh, and it was like in some, it was in a uh, um, London stage show called Sisters. Well, I'm looking here. Sisters with three sisters called Three Sisters, and and that was kind of a bomb. And somehow or other, a lot of that material wound up in a movie uh, called Roberta, uh, which I think is a Rogers and Astaire movie. Uh, and so I Won't Dance got rotated into it. But I think and here is one of these little sort of secrets of lyrics and and show tunes and American songbook. Um, I think what happened was, as it went out to Hollywood, there was a sense that the lyrics needed to be punched up from this this flop of a show in London. And Dorothy Fields was brought in. And I think all of the things that we that knock us out about that lyric, you know, I mean, when you dance, you're charming and you're gentle, especially when you do the continental. But heaven rest us, I'm not asbestos. <laughs> I mean... I mean, that's one of the great rhymes of all time. I think that's all Dorothy feels. You know, a, a woman who was a uh, lyric writing titan uh, among all these famous men. She, uh, I think, sometimes gets brushed aside a little bit, but amazing. All right. That's not what we're here to talk about, but we don't know what we're here to talk about till I give you the number, 888-720-WNPR. And then you will tell me what we're going to talk about, 888-720-9677. 888-720-WNPR. That's one of the numbers. The other number is the same number, 888-720-9677, except that it's actually all numbers. All right. So um, while you're thinking about that, I'll tell you some of the things that I want to talk about besides Dorothy Fields. Um, and, and really, the whole idea, it's ask or tell me anything. If you're new to this, there are no rules and there really aren't very many guardrails either, uh, but uh, you get to decide what the topic of the show is. 
uh, or the topics of the show are. So um, typically what happens on these episodes is that people just call up about whatever <laughs> um, and whatever really in some of the more broadly construed ways. I sort of wonder though, I mean, we really are in a very weird situation with the Trump indictment. I mean, this is really, really odd. Uh, this is very different from anything that has transpired heretofore. I mean, I would say it's more extreme uh, than the Zelensky stuff that led to the first impeachment. Um, it's more dispositive probably than the January 6th stuff, which led to the second impeachment. Um, and it's uh, certainly firmer and more likely to, for example, end, him in, end up with him in prison than the Manhattan indictment, indictment or the E. Jean Carroll thing, which is just a civil judgment anyway. This is really – you remember – I don't know. It, it's all such a jumble. It all gets kind of uh, pushed into, into this huge soup pot of, of memory. Uh, but if you remember sort of during some of James Comey's um, trials and agonies uh, while FBI director and um, – there was a time I think it was uh, Trump was pressuring him to bury the case against General Michael Flynn and, and Comey was resisting and um, afterwards – I think I have this right. Um, uh, Trump said, well, he better hope there aren't tapes of that conversation and, <laughs> and Comey answered famously, lordy, I hope there are tapes. Well, this time there are tapes. I mean there are tapes uh, according to the indictment and I don't think Jack Smith is misspeaking in his own indictment. There are tapes or, or audio recordings anyway, some of which speak very directly to that mens rea question, state of mind question and questions of intent that are often so hard to pin down with Trump because he's such an erratic, chaotic character. He could be doing anything at any time for any reason with any knowledge or lack of knowledge about the consequences and legality about what he's doing because he's a chaos muppet. I mean he's like chaos muppet at animal level. But here, for example, there's apparently audio recordings of him saying, this is classified. I'm not supposed to share it with you. I could have declassified it while I was president, but now I can't. So like several things are exploded in a conversation like that. One of them is his contention that he anyway believed that he could classify things using his mind, using <clears throat> kind of his Darth Vader, uh, Dark Jedi powers, he could declassify things. Even when he wasn't president anymore, he could declassify things with his mind. Well, we, these recordings apparently show him saying that. Well, no, he doesn't think that he can. He knows he can't do that. He knows this thing is classified. He knows he's not supposed to be sharing with people, and he is anyway. These are the kinds of things that if you were any kind of normal defendant, which we understand he is not. He is a former president, and even as former presidents go, he's pretty sui generis. But if you were any kind of normal uh, defendant and these claims held up in court, you'd go to prison. I mean, you would just go to prison and probably a supermax. Yeah, I mean, you would probably, particularly if you were kind of constantly running your mouth still, if you were still talking very publicly about things that you knew and documents you had and what you did with them, uh, and, uh, you know, you would be even more likely to be in a supermax where I just was reading about this today in a terrific site called The Conversation that we use a lot to research shows. Um, you could be in a uh, the kind of supermax and under the kind of confinement. There's a specific name for it, where there's a microphone that you know 
does record your even limited, even your very, very limited interactions with guards and prisoner, other prisoners. So everything that you say needs to be known because what if you say more state secrets? Now, I don't think that's going to happen to him. But when I get through reading this particular article, which was basically a series of questions posed to two uh, lawyers who have deep backgrounds as uh, U.S. prosecutors uh, in the national security area, and I think they're both now law prof- uh, professors, maybe at University of Chicago. But you know, over the weekend, like I was talking to my son about this, and you know, there was sort of this idea that, oh well, you know, they'll put an ankle bracelet on, they'll put a monitor on his ankle, and he'll have to stay somewhere, <laughs> he'll have to stay in Bedminster for a really long time. I'm not sure that that's really – I mean, if he does that, he will be afforded extraordinarily uh, favorable and unusual and preferential treatment over other kinds of defendants in the same boat. Obviously, he's innocent right now until proven guilty. But as even his former attorney general and former uh, apologist, William Barr, said over the weekend – Barr's quote, I think, was, if even half of the charges are true, he's toast. Now, toast is a legal term. I don't know how many people are familiar with the legal term toast, but it basically means you're going to go to prison. (laughs) Uh, It's Latin for prison. All right. So um, here we go. Uh, We are going to take calls that probably have nothing to do with what I just talked about. If uh, experience is any teacher, uh, here is Seth from Norwich. Hi, Seth. You've got the floor. Hi, Colin. I was just curious about desalinization. Yeah. And why it hasn't been uh, a little more important to the human race over the past couple hundred years? It's a great question. It's a question I don't know the answer to. Uh, but, I mean, it obviously does seem as though water shortages are uh, upon us already and will become uh, a larger part of the human narrative, the global narrative. Um, yeah, I'm sort of astonished. I mean, I, I'm my guess would be that the technology – is difficult to do in a cost-effective manner, in a manner that doesn't consume so much energy that it's actually kind of counterproductive, even from a sort of a climate perspective. But I don't know. Do you know more about this than I do? I get the feeling you might. I don't. I don't. I actually just uh, was listening to one of your call-in shows before and thought that would be a good question. It is a good question. I will promise you that we will research it. We'll talk about it at our next meeting. I think that's kind of... We actually have, theoretically, coming up on Thursday of this week, the type of show that we refer to as the scramble, where we can take maybe three shorter topics and talk about them. Uh, desalinization sure. might not be a bad idea. I wish I was more literate on it right now, but I, I, I dare not try to fake it. All right. Here's, by the way, the number to call, 888-720-WNPR. That's otherwise, if you're not into the alpha numeric stuff, uh, it's 888-720-9677. And you can talk on the radio. And here's Sasha from West Hartford to do exactly that. Hi, Sasha. Hi, Colin. How are you? Good. Good, good. So um, I guess I'll ask you my question. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or not question, but I kind of wanted to uh, just kind of bring up uh, Direct Trade and Jamaica Blue Mountain Coffee. Mm-hmm. Um, not sure if you've heard of it before. Mm-hmm. I have, okay, I have, awesome. I have purchased it. I have, I have, but say, say a little bit more for the benefit of our listeners. Yes, sure. So um, Jamaica Blue Mountain Coffee is basically a rare coffee grown in high elevations. 
uh, in the Blue Mountains of Jamaica at about 5,000 feet above sea level in volcanic soil. It's smooth, it's sweet, it's chocolatey. And we at Oval Coffee specialize in Jamaica Blue Mountain. But what we're known especially for is our direct trade. And that is definitely something that we're passionate about because direct trade outside of fair trade is actually where you're able to go and connect with the farmers and your parent paying them a fair wage. So you're even paying them a better wage than fair trade because most people don't know that fair trade coffee sometimes doesn't always translate to farmers. Um, for example, uh, there are some farmers out in Sri Lanka right now where they're tea pickers and they're actually, a lot of them are saying that they're actually going hungry and they're living in squalor because sometimes that funds don't get translate directly to the farmers. But with direct trade, as we specialize in, it actually does get translated and we're able to meet the farmers um, firsthand. We're able to kind of shake their hands, get to know them, know their names. We know our producers. So those are some of the things that um, I kind of wanted to make sure people are aware of is that, you know, finding um, coffee roasters or people in your area that support direct trade is actually going to benefit the farmers in the long run than uh, just fair trade because sometimes that's just the label and um, and the farmers don't actually get the, the funds for it. Sasha, it's a great point. I'm glad you made it. I believe I have purchased and consumed some of your coffee. Um, I drink, I drink a, a fair amount of coffee. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's the the odd side of this is to become an ethical consumer these days to make sure you know when possible that whatever you're buying uh, uh, either contributes the most possible uh, to the welfare of some of the less advantaged producers of whatever it is that you're buying or creates the least amount of harm, it's really quite an undertaking. You know, it's really just to pay attention to all of that stuff to uh, to be. I mean, I, that was so lovely that she gave us a little class uh, in, in that because it, it, you know, I think probably fair trade you know, seems like pretty good, right? <laughs> seems like something would, that would be preferable to, for example, unfair trade. Um, you know, I rarely buy a coffee that is marked unfair trade. Uh, but just to know about all this stuff and just, you know, to buy – God forbid that certain people, and I might be one of them, eats bacon, you know, and then you have to sort of like really look at the bacon box and just like, what you know, how are these pigs treated? But I think that's kind of the world that we should live in. I, mean, I think the vast uh, majority of people live in a kind of state of, of indifference. Uh, but for people who want to eat ethically and consume ethically, it's like a full-time job to make sure you're not screwing somebody or screwing up the environment or something. All right, our number. We got lots of room on the board, 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. And this is Ask or Tell Me Anything. The history of Ask or Tell Me Anything is that even when there's a – or perhaps because there is a momentous news event unfolding before us, uh, which I think is the case with the Trump indictment, um, that often means that it will not be talked about on this show. <laughs> but if you did want to talk about it on this show, you could call 888-720-WNPR or 888-720-9677. One thing that I have some concerns about is just what happens in Miami tomorrow on the streets. I don't think this is going to be like New York where the people said they were going to show, to, show up to protest and and it's like two or three guys talking to Jordan Klepper behind, you know, a sawhorse or something. I don't think it's going to be like that. I think they're getting more organized. Also, it's Florida. Florida's Florida. Uh, so, I mean, the crazy people are already there. They don't have to get a train. 
Um, but but also, I just, there's just a sense I think that this, the stakes are higher. And and you know, once again, Trump is going on TV and going on radio and asking people to come out and protest. And some of the people who support him uh, are saying things that are even more inflammatory. Let me just pull this one up here. Um, Carrie Lake, who, who, the Republican from Arizona, she's planned a rally uh, for uh, support for Trump at a hotel in Palm Beach. Uh, she says, if you want to get to President Trump, you're going to have to go through me and you're going to have to go through 75 million Americans just like me. Earlier in her speech, she said, we're at war, people. We're at war. I do have some concerns about tomorrow. I, I think it really could get fairly ugly. And, you know, and another part of this is to whatever degree, similar to January 6th, uh, President Trump contributes to the ugliness if he is in any way seen as inciting violence. Um, the judge, you know, the the judge will have the option of imposing a gag order or, and once again, in a more typical case, he might actually just be confined so that he can't do that anymore. Uh, and one thing that his lawyers have to work with him on, too, is he has to stop talking. One of these two federal prosecutors, uh, uh, I can't even give you his name. In fact, his name is Ferguson, Joseph Ferguson, uh, national security prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Northern District of Illinois. He said one of the things that he would say to Trump uh, if he were Trump's lawyers or one of Trump's lawyers is, if you want to die in prison, keep talking. Um, the the idea that you would just go on and on post-indictment, <laughs> that you would talk about all this stuff. First of all, the other thing that these two lawyers said, and I, I've done just – I spent the whole weekend sort of geeking out on this case, but uh, these two guys really got my attention. They said also, it isn't as though if you say something, if you've already said something um, and you say it again, you're just saying the thing again. Every time you do that – uh, in a public situation uh, with a case like this coming up, it's a new piece of evidence. And you should think of it as you've now introduced another piece of evidence that could possibly uh, be used against you. All right. We are going to go to Jeff from Coventry. Again, the number 888-720-WNPR, 888-720-9677. Here is Jeff from Coventry. Hi. Oh, but I don't have him locked in. I see I'm out of practice here. Here we go. Here is Jeff from Hi. Coventry. Hi, Jeff. Hi. I'm trying to get it off speakerphone, but I'm having success. Anyways, I hope, hope you can hear me okay. Um, I would like to propose that we stop calling things conspiracy theories and start calling them conspiracy fantasies. That's really what they are. Yeah, well, do you have a do you have a specific okay. do you have a specific example that comes to mind or one that bothers you when it's just called a conspiracy theory? Um, the, well, uh, things about let's say the twenty twenty election mm -hmm. being crooked or rigged or whatever. You know, it's a fantasy. It's, it didn't happen. Right. You know, to me, a theory is something that people try to figure out when something actually happened. And they're trying to figure out how it happened. And here's an idea. This could be what happened. But that's not what we're dealing with here. Yeah. It's a really interesting point. I'm just going to uh, pop you on hold because of the buzz from your speakerphone. But um, yeah, I'll, I'll hang up. I okay. can take it off. To you. Okay. So, um, yes, you can hang up and listen, as they say. Um, so I think, first of all, it's a really interesting point. I mean, I don't think there's much of a chance that there's going to be any kind of 
lexico- lexicographical um, shift about this. But he's right that defaulting to the word theory, he's totally right about the idea of theory. A theory is something that um, is posited with the idea of marshalling a set of facts that either prove or disprove it. Uh, and a lot of these things don't really rise to that level. The problem is the minute you start that argument about whether something's a theory or a fantasy, now you've got an argument. Uh, now you've got an argument that will roll over and kind of acquire. It's sort of like you know, you're trying to put out a fire and you start another fire. Um, I know that's actually something that is done sometimes, but forget about that. Um, you, you start another set of arguments about, well, who gets to decide which one is a theory and which one is a fantasy? I dealt with this a lot over the weekend and towards the end of last week, writing for Hearst about Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who I, you know, I certainly think has trafficked since 2005. Well, no, I, I wouldn't say that. He, he traffics in conspiracy theories and his status as an anti-vax guy um, it, it started, I think, as a guy who really had some pretty pressing doubts and some uh, pretty pressing beliefs uh, in connections between uh, a vaccine component and autism, and that rolled into what I think is now full-blown conspiracy theory. And you know the idea that COVID-19 is itself a weapons, a, a bioweapon or something. I mean, this is a guy who is really toxic and really dangerous to quote his family members. <laughs> they called his rhetoric dangerous. Uh, his wife called one of his analogies reprehensible. <laughs> I mean, some of the sharper criticism is coming from his actual family, from his nearest and dearest. But this is a guy who really is, he's a problem, you know, and he's pulling 19, 20 percent in some of the polls of Democratic potential Democratic primary voters. I mean, I don't think that's a real number. But um, but you have a guy. That guy is he is a full blown con- uh, conspiracy conspiracy theorist, and it's not just about vaccines. Uh, there there is more uh, behind that. Uh, and yeah, he actually I believe he thinks that fluoride in the water uh, causes um, causes uh, children's IQ to be lowered. And now he's. Floating an idea that, to the best of my knowledge, has a tiny bit of connection to any kind of substance, that the uh, upspike uh, in mass shootings in America is somehow or other connected to antidepressants, specifically uh, serotonin, reuptu- serotonin reuptake inhibitors um, like Prozac. Uh, <laughs> there, there just isn't any evidence of that. Uh, and I, I don't – I mean, there are people who think that he should be allowed to debate, that he and Marianne Williamson should be allowed to debate uh, President Biden. President Biden should be forced to participate in debates over the presidential nomination with his two prominently declared adversaries. And like, as I said in Hearst, who would moderate this debate? Rod Serling, Mulder and Scully? I mean, these are not debates about discernible facts. Um, this is a guy who's just got one wackadoodle idea after another. And the only reason he's pulling 20 percent is because of his last name. If his name were Robert Funkhauser, he would not be pulling 20 percent. He wouldn't be pu- probably wouldn't be pulling any percent. Uh, but the idea that we have to have debates. Uh, I mean, what would you do when he said something that was really kind of dangerously untrue? Would you like cut to black and start scrolling up fact checks? I mean, how would you even deal with something like that? All right. So here's Ruth in Sandy Hook. Hi, Ruth. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. I definitely would like to talk about what is going on uh, with Trump and uh, the indictment and tomorrow and how scary it is that there are so many people 
that will do anything that he says. And although he doesn't explicitly say, get your guns and go, you know, shoot all the Democrats, the implication is there, as we well know, from January 11th and, and other places. So I don't understand why we can't stop these people from threatening. Why do we have to wait till something happens? I don't understand why there aren't laws um, that will protect just average people, you know, who want to have laws that apply to everybody. And, of course, we know Trump doesn't expect the law to apply to him, and he's gotten away with it for so many years, um, and he has primed. I can't get over these Republicans in Congress and the Senate who pretend like, oh, my goodness, how could you do this to this person? You know, of course, they know exactly what they're saying, but, you know, they're getting all their people riled up. And, you know, they're not, I read the document, the 49 pages, mm-hmm. right? And it was a, a, an easy read and a great read. And, you know, every other minute I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. <laughs> uh, but <laughs> but anyway, I yeah, don't mean to I, ramble on. No, you can ramble on. <laughs> I mean, I, I do think the problem with uh, with... Um, efforts to limit speech. And, of course, we're right there at the bleeding edge between protected speech and speech that crosses the line. But first of all, most of the people who do this, the Donald Trumps and the Kerry Lakes and people like that, they're pretty – they're either very, very careful or they just have very cunning, feral instincts about what they say uh, because – they usually don't say any, any – they say something that's at least a little bit open to multiple interpretations. Uh, and and they often uh, also kind of buffer what they say. Like if you go back to Trump on January 6th, at one point he says, I, you know, I want this to be peaceful or something. You know? <laughs> you know, but it's just clear that he doesn't from his, right. uh, his other rhetoric. But it's hard. It's hard to look at that, particularly given the, the very, very high priority we place on speech in this country and, and especially on political speech – the extent that this can be called political speech, political speech lives in an even higher, rarer atmosphere than uh, than just normal speech. I mean, as I'm, I frequently say, you cannot lie and say that Crest toothpaste is way better than Colgate and that Colgate makes your teeth sick or something right, if that's not right. true. But you can lie in a political campaign commercial. You are legally allowed to say something that is blatantly untrue. Uh, in a political campaign commercial, and it is virtually impossible to get that commercial off the air because we, in fact, do accord a tremendous amount of front-of-the-line privilege to political speech. So hard to make rules. Would be nice if we could make them, but then we also have to be willing to make rules that we should – I should put it the other way. We should make rules that we would be willing to have apply to us under other circumstances. All right. Let's take a little break. We'll come back with more. 888-720-WNPR. That's the number to call. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Health Care. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Health Care. 
Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. So, yeah, um, that doesn't have anything to do with any particular... We're not going to be talking about yams on the show today. I just like that song. Uh, All right, so our number, 888-720-WNPR. It's Ask or Tell Me Anything, something we do from time to time. There's no guest here. There's just me, and then if you call up, there's you. 888-720-9677. Let's get started back here with... I'm really excited about the fact that a lot of women calling up today. Uh, Women sort of... You know, historically and, and in terms of quantitative analysis, don't call radio shows as much as men do. And I, so I'm very happy when they do it with this particular radio show. Julia or Julie, excuse me, you're on the air. Hi, Colin. Uh, I was listening to your show as I'm driving through Durham doing some errands. And that right when you first started and you were talking about the indictments and all the stuff that's going on, I drive by somebody's yard and there's a sign in all caps, of course, that says, God guns and country and then trump underneath i just don't understand these people (laughs) i don't know what to think i wouldn't know how to even talk to people who have these kinds of signs i see them you know not that many but scattered throughout middletown durham area where i'm frequently driving around and i just i i just was wondering what you think about that and why these people feel the way that they do and and believe everything that he says well i mean i think the why is a really, really complicated question and probably pretty hard to tease out in, in a short format. I don't think there's just one why. But I do think that what has happened here is somebody, uh, uh, I think it was on Talking Points Memo today, wrote that it, we, we're ha- we have sort of a cold civil war, like a civil war version of the Cold War. There aren't really shots mm-hmm. fired, but there's that kind of division now. There's an ideological division that has has combined uh, some uh, bitter enmity among two political sides with some real strong epistemolo- or epistemic questions about how you understand the facts, what the truth is, uh, and a rejection of sources that say things that you don't want to hear. I mean, that's always been sort of part of human nature. But I, I, I notice it these days. If you try to have a conversation with somebody who doesn't believe 
what you be, what you believe or what you feel is true. Uh, showing them, for example, an AP article will do nothing. <laughs> they'll say right. uh, they'll say that's right. that's owned by the people who hate my people. Um, and you say, well, no, AP is kind of famously, you know, not ideological. No, no, it's a, owned by corporations that hate the people that I like or something. And 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 so I think it's partly part of the problem is we're unusually polarized. But I think the other part of the problem is we are unusually deprived of the means by which some conflicts can be resolved or people can be enlisted to kind of move a little bit away from their positions uh, when confronted with facts. You know, and you're seeing right now because, in fact, this this particular Trump indictment, the Jack Smith indictment, is different. You know, from from the other stuff that came before it. Yeah. And and so you do see certain Republicans. You see a guy like Bill Barr, who's made every kind of excuse for Trump in the past, and just yeah. uh, just completely spat on the the Manhattan indictment. He's you know, I mean, he's very very seriously concerned and moved about this. And so you can unfortunately count on your fingers and toes the number of people who are changing their positions because I don't think facts. There, there was a point. I mean, I've been thinking a lot about Watergate. I don't know how old you are. I was a teenager during Watergate. And uh, I'm of, older than you. Okay. <laughs> I mean, there was a point where the facts, you know, when the tapes sort of became known and the contents of the tapes became known, facts really just started to matter. And there were plenty of people who were just kind of dug in Nixon partisans, but there were just a lot of other people. And ultimately, a lot of them were Republicans. And some of them were Republican leaders in Congress who just said, well, no, right. we we just we this can't be allowed to stand if we ignore it or support him in the teeth of this kind of information. We won't have a workable system anymore. And and I think that's about where we are right now. There's some real questions about whether we can have a workable system, but but we'll see. We'll see what happens. I'm not enthusiastic though. But don't let the signs yeah. bother you. How you need to have a happy day anyway, and you know, there's one thing at a time, right? Well, yeah. Thank you. You too. Okay. <laughs> take care. Okay. Yeah. No, that ship has already sailed. Um, all right. Um, well, let's go to Nancy, and then we'll go to Tom. Uh, there's somebody else who called in a question and didn't want to stay on the line, David from Franklin. I could try to maybe answer that question. Uh, here is Nancy, Nancy in East Lyme. Hi. Hey, how are you? Thank you uh, for taking my call. Sure. Um, it, it was interesting when you t- spoke about um, uh, political speech in the last part of the conversation before the, the commercial break. Mm-hmm. And I get it. I, I get political speech is is different. But what is really annoying and I think very dangerous is when you have um, someone like the Speaker of the House who uh, is in a very powerful and influential position. What he says uh, matters, uh, makes a comment uh, like he did uh, when the indictment came out, and he called it Biden's indictment, which is such uh, uh, it's just such a dangerous um, statement to make when he knows full well that that is not true. And I, I wonder how can we hold um, our elected officials to, I'm not even going to say to a higher standard, but to the standard uh, which comes with uh, their position. Yeah, I mean, there's two ways to hold people accountable, people who are office holders, as you describe. 
One of them is elections themselves. Uh, and unfortunately, because of the way politics are structured, because of gerrymandering and because of kind of that big sort, you know, in which people wound up moving to places where they were all ideologically aligned or more likely to be ideologically aligned, it's harder and harder yeah. to use an election to punish somebody for lying or being disingenuous or, uh, you know, it's just it's harder. And then the, I think the other part of this is where the press comes in. And, and obviously, as I just said to the previous caller, the problem with the press at this point is that people who don't want to believe the press just discount the source. Uh, and, and But, I mean, it's still – that's kind of our job. It's our job to keep Kevin McCarthy and everybody else as honest as we can keep them or at least make it clear. I mean, for example, there's a pretty good piece in The Washington Post today about what the difference is between – what Trump is indicted for in the things that uh, Hillary Clinton, Joe Biden, and even Mike Pence yeah. uh, might have done. Yeah. And it, it's a very helpful piece just if you're at a cookout or something and somebody raises that you know pretty common idea right now. All these other guys did the same thing and nothing happened to them. Well, I mean, then you have the information about how it's different. Uh, so, right. I mean, there's at least that kind of stuff. But there isn't any magic wand solution. I mean – you know, what's really interesting to me when we think about this together, uh, Nancy, is, you know, there's this sort of common wisdom right now that the 24 election, barring some, you know, major restructuring, which we might be looking at right this very second. But if things sort of kind of continue as they seem to be, you know, it'll come down to Arizona, Wisconsin and Georgia. And that's kind of interesting because right. that's like those are three states where, you know, once again, there is enough competitiveness, uh, and, and there is a, a pretty solidly ingrained conservative population that is rubbing shoulders now with people who are not like-minded, that you have kind of democracy the way you want it to be, right? Where there are persuadable people. There are people uh, who, who can be either motivated to go and vote when they otherwise wouldn't or to actually change votes that they were going to cast by facts and arguments. In a way, those incredibly volatile and mercurial states that we're all going to be watching with bated breath in November of 2024, they're kind of what the country used to be uh, quite a bit more <laughs> anyway. Uh, so I don't even know what point I'm making. What point am I making, Nancy? Well, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I think <laughs> what, I, what I would point, uh, point out there, too, is that um, a lot of the states that might be giving us that type of dare I say, traditional election, uh, the rules are being changed. Um, and it's it's going to be harder and harder, I think, to find that. Um, but I appreciate your 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 programming. And it's uh, always good to to get people talking about this stuff, because it, it's if we stop talking about it, uh, it's just going to really end up being a, a real, real Awful, awful situation. Yep, one hundred percent, Nancy. Uh, all right, we're going to go to Tom. We also have Lake Como Dave on the line, uh, but uh, Tom is first. Tom's in New Haven. Hi. Hey, Colin. How's it going? Just, just ducky. Hey, um, what crazy thing did Marianne Williamson say? I love Marianne Williamson. Well, I mean, I also love you, Colin. Yeah, you're quite entitled to to love Marianne Williamson. I, I don't <laughs> think I said that she said crazy things, but I'm well. Oh. I mean, maybe she she has said crazy things. Let's be clear. Um, and but no, she she's I mean, she's not aligned with Robert F. Kennedy. She's running for president. She for the second time now. Well, the second major time she's running for president. I mean, I think she has things that she has to live down, things that she not only said, but things that she wrote, including the notion that sickness uh, is an illusion 
um, that there are, the diseases aren't real and stuff. She's kind of retracted that. But when you when you publish a book making an argument like that, you you know, <laughs> you, you well. If you were president, you'd be in charge of, among other things, the public health of the United States. I think it would make sense, not that she has any chance of getting elected, but it would make sense if she did to press her pretty hard about what is her view of medical science. Does she really think all illness comes from the soul? Not not crazy like Robert Kennedy, though. I would say less crazy. And and I think she's also – I mean, the difference between Robert F. Kennedy and Marianne Williamson, and there are many, I suppose – but she seems to know when she's done something that she needs to reframe somehow. She knows. She seems to know when things that she's done or said in the past. I mean, I believe she has said, for example, on other occasions that hurricanes can be redirected by the power of the mind. Um, you know, just not the position of the NOAA. <laughs> not, not something that we would – I mean, we've already got Trump with his Sharpie <laughs> drawing, drawing new unscientific tracks for hurricanes – so it wouldn't really be an upgrade to elect somebody president who thought that you could divert hurricanes with your the powers of your brain or soul or whatever or your Jedi powers, whatever. So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I got nothing against Marianne Williamson doing what she does now. I think that's just fine. I, I have no problems whatsoever with Marianne Williamson being, for want of a better term, Marianne Williamson. But I have a real problem with her being president, Marianne Williamson. <laughs> that would be really scary. I mean, it's not going to happen. But then what other things have we ever said were not going to happen, particularly in terms of who could conceivably get elected president? You can't even say anymore, though that person can't get elected. That person's crazy. Like those two things don't necessarily, you know, join together comfortably. They don't couple like railroad cars. Okay, we got Lakomo Dave on the line, but we kind of need to go to our break. We'll go to our break. We'll come back. We've got him. I need to answer a question from another David, uh, if I possibly can. The technical producer today, uh, ideally every day, is Kat Pastor, uh, and the senior producer of the Colin McEnroe Show, Lily Tyson, is also the producer of this episode, and she's the one screening calls and all that kind of stuff. So if you call 888-720-WNPR, that's 888-720-9677, you know, you'll talk to Lily first, and that would be, you know, an honor. And I forget to mention... Not that this necessarily directly connects to Lily Tyson, but there really is a pretty interesting UFO development uh, that somehow or other is getting swept under the rug. There's this new whistleblower who seems pretty credible who is talking about the fact that the government has retrieved uh, semi-intact or nearly intact. Isn't it? It's not just stuff they're seeing in the sky. It's not, not Tic Tacs flying by the window anymore. There's like stuff on the ground that they found that are not of earthly origin. And Anyway. Well, we'll try to get to that at some point. And that actually also touches upon a question that we got asked, but not on the air. And we will try to get to that too. But, but, oh, I wanted to say one more thing before I go to Lake Como, Dave, which is that, um, I'm not that you should necessarily care, but, um, but I really like doing this show so much. I mean, it's, uh, I really had a bad week last week. It was really awful. Uh, and <laughs> this morning, <laughs> this morning, I'm kind of l- lying around the house saying to my partner, I don't think I can do this. 
I just don't, I don't, I've got nothing left in my tank. But the truth is this show, doing this show, talking to you guys and just trying to put on a halfway decent radio show, it really does fill my tank back up. It really does recharge me. So um, thank you for being part of that ecosystem because because uh, otherwise I would still be lying around the house going, I don't think I can do this. <laughs> so, so you have saved me. Uh, if you do nothing else all day long, you saved Colin McEnroe. Um, all right. <laughs> Not that that should necessarily cause you to have some kind of inner, inner parade for yourself. Here's Dave, Lake Como Dave, uh, one of our most, most famous callers and listeners, is on the air. Hi, Dave. Oh, what a burden to live up to. Oh, yeah. A lot of pressure. Well, thank Oh, not at all. But thank you for taking my call. And indeed, Lily Tyson is a lovely person to talk to. Very, you know, kind, gracious. So it is always an honor, as you say. Mm-hmm. But uh, what I was going to bring up quickly was that, you know, for those who really felt that this was this, these charges being filed by Jack Smith were um, so long awaited uh, because it was real justice, you know, finally on its way. Um, there was that amazing feeling of having the boot taken off all of our necks, you know, the day that the charges dropped. And then when the the case being uh, moved to Florida or, you know, the jurisdiction being established in Florida, you know, again, I thought, hey, another great thing. What a smart move, because that way you don't have a long protracted fight over jurisdiction, you know, can't get a fair trial in D.C. or, you know, whatever. And then, thunk, once, you know. Eileen Cannon is announced as the judge. How in the world could that have happened? And the fact that she, I think she could do the most damage with jury selection. That could really, really kill it. Yeah, no, you are not alone in thinking that. In fact, I got an email today from my friend Paul Teeger, who's been a jury consultant, bringing up that idea. So just a background for Cannon, for people who don't follow this that closely. She was the judge kind of an early part of the case, the where she basically attempted to shut down um, a federal investigation of Trump uh, until a special master could review everything. Um, her actions in, during the investigative phase of this um, were so extreme and such a mangling of the law that she was famously and pretty forcefully rebuked by the 11th Circuit through a three-judge panel on the 11th Circuit. They were all, by the way, Republican appointees. I think it was two Trump appointees and one Bush appointee. It might be, might be the other way around. But I mean, she got spanked really hard for that. And so my understanding of the reason that she came up again, it's not a carryover from that first thing. It wasn't because she did the first thing, she's automatically doing the second thing. She got picked again. And, and my understanding also is that if you were just sort of looking at that region, there'd be 15 or so eligible judges. But what the prosecutors did, what Jack Smith's staff did, was they checked a box for a venue. I think it was a box for West Palm Beach because basically you know, the crimes would have occurred you know, in that area. And by checking that box, the pool got smaller and she, I think, sits in nearby Fort Pierce. And so just numerically, there was a better chance that she was going to roll up again. Uh, now, I would assume that either tomorrow or whenever the first opportunity occurs, probably not tomorrow, but when, when there's a, uh, an opportunity, Smith will at least have the option of moving for her to recuse, asking her to recuse. Uh, and whether she does at that point or not is probably almost entirely up to her, although she may be getting some backstage instructions from people. I mean, it's probably not a good look if she does – uh, oversee this case, preside in, preside in this case. But we'll see. And, and there are other people who think, you know, I mean, having gotten spanked that hard by the, the, the 11th Circuit, 
she doesn't want to do that again. So, you know, we'll see. I'm not I mean, most people are very worried about that. And legitimately, like Como, Dave, you and other people are worried about jury selection. Um, well, first of all, we're a long way from that. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how how long we are from it. Um, everybody claims they want a speedy trial. Both sides always claim they want a speedy trial. But for the most part, really good defense lawyers can fight delaying actions for a really long time. Uh, and my guess is that this doesn't go to trial before the 2024 election. Um, we'll see. Uh, so there's a, there's sort of much to be said, much to be told before we even get to the point of jury selection. And, and I, I don't think you can really know. I mean, we know that that Eileen Cannon is, you know, a Trump, I don't know, sympathizer. And one of the things I will say about this, and this point was made by the Lawfare podcast, in terms of jury selection, if you're a Trump supporter at this point, if you are a Trump supporter, that means you have decided that you can countenance, for example, the president uh, demanding a personal political favor from the leader of Ukraine in return for the release of already appropriated U.S. funds. That, that, I mean, there's no real question about whether or not that happened. It happened. Um, you are okay with the role that he played in whipping up the crowd that attacked the U.S. Capitol, causing mayhem, physical injury, depth. Uh, and, and uh, the traumatization uh, of the police force, uh, you're okay with that. <laughs> you're okay with what apparently was found to be the case in the E. Jean Carroll case. I mean, on and on and on. Uh, there, the number of things that you have decided that you can countenance uh, is, you know, very a pretty wide net at this point. Well, and you're also okay with him attempting to overturn with very little factual, zero factual or legal basis, overturn the results of a U.S. election uh, with, I mean, maybe the gravest sin of all is trying to interfere with our centuries-old tradition of orderly transfer of power. You're okay with that, too. So it seems to me that if you're a Trump supporter, if you're somebody who was planning to vote for Trump in 2024, given the opportunity, it, it does seem unlikely <laughs> <laughs> that you would be moved by a compelling factual and legal argument uh, made by the prosecution. You probably shouldn't be allowed to be on the jury, but I don't know how you can make that a deal breaker. And to Lake Como's, Lake Como Dave's point, Eileen Cannon sure as heck is not going to allow that to be a deal breaker. Anyway, we have to stop now. It's been a lot of fun. We have more shows. Oh, Song of the Summer show, which you either love or hate every year when we do it, is coming up on Wednesday. <laughs> 